This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life. Become an agent for other intelligences. And begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of The Inner Lives of Fungi of Juliana Fucci. Today we're going to be talking about fungi and... If you've been tuning into the cultural zeitgeist these days, you'll probably have noticed that mushrooms and fungi are becoming quite the range. Every day I hear metaphors about the wood wide web or how we're all just like the fungi and mycelium, connected by invisible strands. It seems that something very magical about this kingdom of life has gripped our collective imagination, and I am all for it. I mean, after all, we owe our lives to the fungi. Without them, we'd have no plants, no trees, no food, no animals, no life. You can say goodbye to chocolate, wine, beer, kombucha, yogurt, even baked bread. All the good things. I don't know where I would be without all that stuff. And so it's kind of interesting that despite their burgeoning popularity, science has barely scratched the surface of mapping and understanding the hidden world of the fungi. The more we learn, the more they baffle our minds the more that they warp our understanding of what is even possible. They've been seen to digest and filter toxic radiochemical waste. We've used their behavior to help us design complex urban transportation networks. They produce thousands of substances that aren't found in any other life forms, some of which can be used to heal mental illness and chronic disease. And their prolific exchange networks with the plant roots are like our stock exchange networks on steroids. They essentially are the matter that stitch together ecosystems, sequester carbon, drive global nutrient cycles, and uphold the world's biodiversity. They've also exhibited slightly more troubling behaviors that I hope they don't begin to do to us humans. They have been seen to take over ants' nervous systems and hijack their behaviors to create these very freaky zombie-like ants. So yeah, fungi. Fascinating, weird, magnificent, and I resonated a lot with a phrase that Merlin Sheldrake wrote in his book, Entangled Life, which said that the fungi are the go-betweens that inhabit the boundary of life and non-life. In short, the entire way that this kingdom sees and lives its experienced life world is so entirely different to anything else on this planet. And it's critical that we understand it better because they do quite literally underpin all of life. This is why I am thrilled to share with you today Juliana Furci, Chile's first female mycologist and founder of the Fungi Foundation, which is the world's first association that works on behalf of the fungi to place them in their rightful home beside the flora and fauna kingdoms. Juliana is also a Harvard University associate, Dame of the Order of the Star of Italy, and co-chair of the IUCN Fungal Conservation Committee. Here is Juliana Furci, today on LifeWorlds. Hola, Juliana. Welcome to Life Worlds. Thank you very much. 
So today we're going to be talking about the fungi in lots of different wonderful ways. And to kick us off, I was wondering if you could take us through a day in the life of a fungi. Like, what's it like to be a fungi? What do they do? What kind of activities would they be engaged in right now all around the world? So that's, a, that's actually a really interesting question because it can, it can lead us to giving some context. So fungi are organisms that can form a kingdom of life. And so um, inside the kingdom of the fungi, there are organisms that are very different. So there are unicellular fungi like yeast. There are molds, lichens, mushrooms, conchs, and a day in each one of these is very different. It's, it's, you know, it's equivalent to asking what would a day in the life of a plant be? And in that case, you know, an algae and a moss, you know, an old growth tree will have different days. But what's common to all of the fungi is that they are organisms that normally live inside their food. So they're organisms that are very intimately related to another. Fungi cannot exist without another and very graphically. So they are organisms that are never alone. They are organisms that are either assisting the life of another life form through a symbiosis or are recycling energy and compounds on Earth um, through decomposition. I would say that that more or less cover what most or all fungi would be doing in a day. It sounds so delightful to be a fungi. It's yeah. like you're never alone and you're always assisting in life. How do people come across fungi in their day-to-day -day life without even realizing what are the kinds of products or things they might see in the world that can be attributed to the presence of this entire kingdom of life? So, for example, if you use laundry detergents that clean in cold water, you're using a detergent that is based on fungal enzymes to clean your clothes without, you know, without heat, for example. You know, metals, if you use copper um, in any way or form, which we do through so many cables, there are fungi involved in a process to optimize the amount of copper that's extracted from the rock, you know, throughout mining systems in the world. We use fungi in the form of yeast every day and many times a day, you know, if it's either through bread uh, yogurts, kombucha, or like myself, wine, or others, beer, you know, you're, you're, you're using uh, fungi. So you, sometimes you don't even realize that it, actually without fungi, there'd be no chocolate, no coffee, no bread, you know, no teas, um, no wine, no beer, and, and we could go on. It sounds pretty tragic without them. Well, I was about to say, it sounds so tragic. And through you, I learned this fact that is even more tragic, which is that less than 1% of global conservation priorities are focused on this sort of bedrock of life, on these creatures that generate all other forms of life, decompose life, and now allow new life to be. Why do you think that the global conservation movement that can be so savvy and smart, I think in some ways, has neglected the fungi in its priorities? You know, Alexa, it's actually 0.2%, which, you know, is so much less than one. So you know, it really is a neglected kingdom in those terms. You know, I, I think that um, I'm pretty sure that the reason is that until 2012, there was no environmental non-for-profit advocating for fungi. Um, there was no non-for-profit working for the interests of these organisms. If we look at what an environmental NGO does, ideally they will be translating science to policy. 
And, you know, one very clear example of that is, for example, what WWF has done with the black rhino, right? Science was saying the rhinos are in trouble. Uh, WWF took that information and leveraged policy changes to protect the rhino until the creation of the Fungi Foundation that had never, ever been a possibility for fungi. So we're the first NGO in the world to do that. And, and I think that's really the changes is noticeable. Today, thankfully, there are more NGOs working for the fungi. And it, maybe it's there's something there about their invisibility and also just that they haven't been mapped and they're barely understood. And people uh, used to lump them, and understandably so, right, under flora and fauna, right? We thought they were plants or that they were animals. Yeah. And actually, they're, they're their whole entire kingdom. And so they were also grouped incorrectly. So that, that incorrect grouping was... Uh, was changed in 1969. But still, you know, during the 70s, 80s, 90s, and first decade of 2000, not much had been done for them. So um, one of the one of the things that has, you know, has really changed is that independent of the fact that they were thought to be plants or animals, and really dependent on the fact that we've known for a very long time how important they are. We've, we've known for a very long time that life emerged from an aquatic system um, thanks to a symbiosis between fungi and, and plants. I mean, there's been a lot of very sound science that we've known for a very long time, but the work to incorporate fungi into conservation priorities or planning or into international agreements cannot be done from a laboratory in a university. And you, there is another, you know, stakeholder that needs to be present to trigger that inclusion. And, and that is traditionally the role of either museums, there could be some sort of a scientific institution or non-for-profits. And, and I, I sincerely think that um, it was the lack of advocacy for the science to be translated to public policy that really uh, determined the fact that they were so neglected. And that's obviously what led you to create what was this first foundation just about a decade ago. And because you've created the first foundation that's speaking on behalf of these other forms of life, you're doing things that have never been done before in all the different domains that you guys are active in. Describe a little bit what the what the foundation is doing and what are its, its activities. The organization works for the fungi in any way and every way that we think it could be possible to um, ensure to recognize their ways of life. So currently we are an organization that's working on four lines of work. One is conservation and in conservation we work for the world to move to adopt mycologically inclusive language because language creates reality and we have to say their name. We have to say the name of the fungi and we really need to transition into this inclusive language. Um, and in that conservation program, we also work for the conservation of old growth forests um, through the specificity of their fungi and how the fungi can really make the case for the protection of old ecosystems and old trees and old forests. We have an education program in which we have co-developed and are now implementing the first free global mycological curriculum for school children because we believe that as much needs to be taught about mycology in public schooling than is taught about uh, plants and animals at least that much. Uh, we have a uh, elders program and that program has been mapping um, 
all known ancestral and traditional uses of fungi with humanity and really understanding the cultural co-evolutions that have evolved separately in different parts of the world. So different peoples at different moments, very early on, have had fungal allies in the same way. And that's very interesting. And then um, we also have an expeditions program that um, takes us to look for fungi in places that nobody's ever been before to look for them. And we discover fungal diversity, we create capacity, and um, we do a lot of storytelling through those expeditions. I am so excited to have you bring us into all those expeditions in just a second. Uh, something I think is that's so cool that you did with the foundation was basically intervening in the legislation of your own country, which is Chile, and getting them to change their laws and to recognize the fungi. That was obviously a global first. What did that entail? Like what changed in the, um, in the government's understanding of the fungi through your work? So in the year 2010, there was an opening to modify some aspects of the constitutional law that regulates um, that mandates what happens with the environment in Chile. And when, when legislation is open for comment or is open for modification, you know, anything can happen. And, and, and I recognize the chance to propose um, that fungi be included on an equal footing as plants and animals. And to have that happen, you know, it was two years of work, a lot of work in Congress, talking to senators, members of parliament, um, to their, you know, advisors primarily. But ultimately what made the change possible was the demonstration that including fungi in legislation wasn't a huge additional cost, either for the government or for investors or foreign investors for, uh, in the country. So it was also in response to an IUCN and an OECD recommendation that countries adopt an ecosystemic view of nature. And ultimately, um, what makes a system an ecosystem are the fungi that connect everything. And, and that was how we, how we pitched it. And so you'd say that now the fungi are a little bit more protected by the law in Chile than they were before. They weren't protected by law in Chile before. And today, every single environmental impact assessment to get a permit to impact land must demonstrate there's no durable negative effect on fungi. And that also triggered the need to red list species to train mycologists. Um, and so we, we really took on the integral task and did, you know, all the steps we needed to today have a, a, a very, you know, successful system um, with mycologists that are employed, you know, information systems, public information systems are generated. You know, the th threat of extinction for these species are evaluated on a yearly basis and, um, and ecosystems can be protected because certain fungi may be there or are there. I think what's so interesting about that is so many young people today, they want to become active in the environmental movement and to do something that's meaningful with their time. And something like changing the law of government or constitution allows for a whole new field and capacity building to happen for people to go and do field trainings or expeditions. And I think it, it opens up a whole new world and it's such a, an interesting ecosystemic intervention. Um, let's talk about the expeditions. I mean, what happens when you're out there, out there in, in the land, in the forest, in the mountains? What's been your experience of going out and looking for fungi? And what kind of sensitivities do you need in, in your body and in your mind to kind of do that well? What's it like to be out there, discover a fungi, 
Like maybe tell us some of those stories of because I don't think everyone's been on an expedition looking for fungi. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> it's it's really important to state the difference between an expedition in a warm you know, area of the world and then our cold, temperate areas of the world, they're very, very different. So um, I've actually been on expeditions in close to 20 countries over, you know, my career and and uh, have lived, you know, expeditions that are sleeping in hammocks in the Amazon and, you know, fiending off the bugs. Um, and that's, you know, one story. But what I most love to do is go to Patagonia, to the far south of the southern cone of South America, um, to the temperate old growth rainforests and the subantarctic forests. The temperatures are extremely cold. Distances are very, very um, big. Um, and so normally what a, 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 you know, a, a serious mycological exploration consists of is, first of all, you carry what you need. Um, there is a very strong notion of self-sustenance um, during an expedition. So, you know, depending on how much you can carry on your back, you know, how much food you can carry and, and what you need to collect is really how far you can go. And normally there are about two to three weeks. You're carrying a backpack of 25 kilos, more or less. You're carrying your food, you're collecting gear, a tent, sleeping bag. Only two changes of clothes, one dry, one wet. And you're walking in, you know, cold conditions, five to 12 degrees centigrade um, in the day. We are walking, sometimes we will walk to a place, set up base, and then do short excursions, um, you know, just with day packs. Um, and you're basically looking at the ground, walking very slowly. I would say sharpening your senses to be able to re react to odors, smells that are different, um, to react to differences in the texture of the ground landscape. So plants have a certain vibration, a certain color and texture vibration, and fungi have a different vibration. And so you're able to, if you can tune in and you can sharpen that sense, you're able to respond to um, visual signals that, that are, that are, are, are fungal, fungal signals. Um, and then there's also this intuition of a place, you know, and, and, and this happens a lot that you're walking and there is a, um, there's like a compulsion to go in a certain direction and you go and you find something astonishing. So, so these these expeditions are normally quite silent. We're not normally, you know, there's no music in the forest playing. Nobody, you know, nobody's really chatting away. We're all very sharpened in our sense of openness to an encounter with a fungal, with a fungus, with the visible structure of a fungus. Yeah, and stories there are many. I've been lost in the forest for a couple of days. I've, um, you know, I've had some funny, you know, incidents with going into the forest with two boots on and coming out with only one. And you know, there are so many fun things that can happen. One that's actually quite interesting is, in, in, on two occasions, I found new species to silence. To, sorry, to science when you just, you know, hide behind a tree to go to go to the, you know, have a pee. And, you know, those moments are really, really special because you're so, you're so, you know, just in your 
biological function and suddenly you look and you're like, oh, you know, that's different. <laughs> it's happened twice. You probably have to be <laughs> yeah. careful not to get too excited with your pants around your ankles and get up and fall over and, and squash the fungi that you just found, <laughs> which is, by the way, what I would do. <laughs> no, the important thing is pulling them back up before you go back to the group to show them, you know, not walking out with the pants around the ankles. I bet you there's like a running joke in your team that like, oh, Juliana's going to go pee. Guess she's going to come back with a new fungi right now. <laughs> Yeah. What's that encounter like when you find a fungi that might be someone you've never met before, um, or even someone who's new to science? What what is the pros? What is that feeling like in, inside of you? Well, you know, Alexa, for me, the, there is no difference between the feeling of something that I know, you know, of encountering a fungus that I know is, has most probably not been described and one that is very common. What with time, I have learned to accept just because it's it's absolutely it's unchangeable is that every time I encounter a fungus I feel plenitude and and it's a very powerful sensation of plenitude it's a it's a space in which everything is okay and really nothing much else matters and it's very profound and it, it happens you know with with any with any fungus with you know even when I find you know mold on a lemon, I, I, I instantly feel a very ineludible responsibility that comes from plenitude and doing something for them. Yeah. Profound love. That's such an incredible feeling, um, even in the most simple mold on the lemon. Do you, do you believe that there's such a thing called interspecies communication? And, and if so, have you, you spoke earlier about sort of vibrations and intuitions. Have you sense at any point in time that the fungi were able to speak in their own sort of subtle way to you to communicate something? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have a, I have no doubt that there is a form of communication, uh, you know, referring to what I was mentioning before, sometimes you're walking in the forest and they sort of call you over to a different place. And that's happened from cars. You know, I've been driving and suddenly it's like, stop go over there and you go and you see, you find the most extraordinary mushrooms and the, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know, you couldn't have seen them from, from the car. So those things happen a lot. I, I have no doubt that there is interspecies communication. It's not verbal as in human verbal communication, but there is a communication. And, and the other thing is that, you know, to the extent of how long I've been striving to, to be able to work for the fungi and, to the extent of how relentless I realize now, looking back, how relentless I've been, I have no doubt that they chose me and because I have tried to rationally do something else and it's impossible. I can't do anything else. The, um, the other scientists and the volunteers that come on the expeditions, perhaps they don't have the same as yet trained abilities to walk in this silent way and sense the texture of a landscape and maybe even the language of vibration might be straight bizarre to them. Do you need to train them in a particular way or is it something that happens just by being out there and being in that space or is there some kind of sensitivity uh, prerequisite that people need to have to go out there? I've learned with time and over all these expeditions that everybody has a different way and that, and that 
um, there are people who are in no way in tune and have the most spectacular finds. You know, uh, I don't think it's a pre, I know it's not a prerequisite. Um, but I do urge people to at least understand this state of awareness and the state of openness to an encounter that can really help you with your finds. And, but most of all, I would say, you know, the important thing is to be very calm when you, when you encounter a fungus, because if you are too, you know, flustered and, you know, excited, you might not go through the steps needed to correctly voucher that encounter. So you need to, you know, you need to, you have the encounter, you have, there's a lot of emotion and you need to calm yourself. You need to calm your waters. You need to calm your mind and you need to concentrate and to, to do your work. And that's, that's what I can best train people to do. But the relationship with the fungi is very intimate and it's very personal. And there are so many different ways to, to relate to them. It sounds like this, this way of being practiced and tuned over time um, and a certain mastery of it must trickle into the, your other ways of being in the world and maybe gives you the fortitude to run this foundation, which was one of the, you know, it's first in the world and your ability to listen closely and keep calm. And do you feel like those those capacities have changed you in sort of day-to-day life? I think that what I've learned very much from fungi and how they live. One of the things that I think they've taught me the most is how important it is to uh, understand that we can't and we don't have to do anything alone. Um, We aren't separate from another. They question the limits of an individual and they question the limits of individual existence, right? So for example, I see a tree and I I see an ecosystem. I, I don't see one species of plant. There are so many fungi you know, on and in the roots and in every cell of that tree. So, so really learning how to understand that we're part of something and that we, we don't hold an ultimate way that things should be doing, or you know, that we're we're not ho- individually we're not holders of a correct or incorrect way of doing things. We're part of we're part of something a, a lot larger, and. And and the other thing that they've really influenced in my life is how important it is to let things rot, to let things decompose. Ideas, ideals, relationships. Um, we it's decomposition is the only way we can recompose. And the process of decay and rotting is fundamental to the process of creating. It's so interesting. And um, gosh, I mean that that decomposition subject. It's, you know, it's obviously our society's fear of death in so many ways, but it's also the hiding of death. You know, we can't have animal carcasses decaying out in the wild, even though they're feeding everything else. We can't have fallen trees in old growth forests because God forbid it's decadent or in tree farms. And yet that is the very substrate that the new trees will be eating. And in a way, it's kind of like how we're putting a lot of our elders out of sight and out of mind in our society, the postmenopausal women have no use, right? And actually in ancient societies, that was when females became, uh, you know, <laughs> so deeply valued and used. And so I think that through the story of the fungi, uh, you're highlighting actually a much more profound uh, malaise or, um, I don't know, lack of coherence that our society has 
around the idea of death and decay and rot. Yeah, you know, I've been dwelling on this for a very long time. Last year, we we um, published a short documentary called Let Things Rot, and you can find it on YouTube and the foundation. I urge everybody and anybody who can to see it. Um, but basically what we show there and, and, and think about is how maybe the most you know, glorious moment of a tree's life is when it falls naturally, hits the ground and starts to decompose. And, and it's, it's very beautiful to think about that and how fungi really teach us that death is, is a beginning, you know, that really nothing ends with the end of one line. What the end of one life form is really just the beginning of many others. Yeah. One of the uh, lessons that I perhaps received from the fungi was um, the idea that incredibly toxic things can be transmutated as well, uh, which is part of decomposition, but has its own kind of aspect to it, you know, and I'm sure people have heard or seen of the, um, you know, the, the fungi that uh, grow on cigarette butts or heaps of hydrocarbons and create sort of new life. Even enriched uranium. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> you probably don't want to eat that that fungi. Nuclear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I think that that is also a really potent lesson for this moment in time where it's like yes there, you know, things might be absolutely toxic and yet there will always be the capacity to transmute them if you find the right invisible materials to do so and the uh, unexpected protagonists of that story that aren't individuals but they're actually collectives and you know the largest collective on the planet. And I think that's what's so interesting about science and what you're doing is that the understanding of the science primes us to see the world around us very differently. And so that, I think, brings me to the subject of the role of language, because language primes us. And uh, you've often said that language uh, creates reality. It might sound like an obvious statement, but I actually don't think it is. What, what do you mean by that, and especially in your line of work? When we refer to uh, to nature, we we say <clears throat> certain words. So when we're going to plan to teach somebody, for example, about you know a forest, we might say, "Hey, let's go and understand the flora and fauna of the forest." Now, what you're specifically saying there is, "Let's go and check out the plants and animals of a forest," and and we don't even realize how deliberately and how explicitly exclusive of fungi our language is when we refer to nature. When we talk about the flora of the gut, we're saying plants, right? It's a word. Flora refers to plants. And so when you get into the fine line in in conservation agreements, in international treaties, in terms of reference for, for science research funding, and we're using this language that we really haven't thought about and we see, okay, so this grant is going to cover, you know, five years of research in the flora and fauna of, you know, Borneo. A mycologist is explicitly excluded from proposing work there because flora and fauna just refers to plants and animals. And we see this and it's, it's, it, it hasn't been a deliberate exclusion, but in a, it is an effective exclusion. And it's an exclusion that has truncated funding streams for, for mycological research. Um, and in, when, in, in broader policy frameworks, it, it actually um, inhibits you from being able to include fungi in agricultural you know, frameworks or in education frameworks. So at the Fungi Foundation, we understand that we have limited time 
um, just because of how long we live, each one of us, we have limited time to be able to maximize the effect of our efforts. And we've decided that, you know, we place our 100% in everything we do, but if we place that 100% in an effort that will have an impact on a larger number of people, that might might be the best way forward for fungi at the moment, instead of maybe putting our 100% effort in a community that might want to cultivate because they they you know they have an issue with weight waste or with food, which is equally valuable. But in an organization, you know, in the fungi, fungi foundation, we've decided that our effort is best placed where we can trigger um, durable change with the maximum effect. And so, really moving for this language to be abolished, this this plant and animal centric language to be considered obsolete has been a focus. And in 2018, we we wrote, we co-wrote the paper that actually delimits the, the terminology that is now valid for the inclusion of fungi in conservation and, and other policy frameworks through the delimitation of the term funga, F-U-N-G-A, that refers to the fungal diversity of a given place. So we would say, you know, the flora of Borneo, the fauna of Borneo, the funga of Borneo. The funga is the diversity of organisms of kingdom fungi that are in that place. And that has been widely accepted. And last year, thankfully, it was adopted by large and influential um, environmental institutions by the Chilean government. Um, this morning I spoke to government in Singapore. I mean, we're, we're working with governments in different places for them to adopt this language and, um, to their benefit, you know, by, by adopting mycologically inclusive language, they in effect start understanding that habitats cannot be offset. They cannot be compensated in any way that species are not separate from their habitat. Uh, you can uproot a, a plant and plant it elsewhere. You can capture an animal and cage them elsewhere, but you can't do that with the fungi. You can't separate the fungi from their habitat. And so they are a very effective conservation tool for habitats. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I'd, I'd actually never thought of that. Uh, we speak a little bit on the podcast here about a human-centric language and how we don't adequately represent the interests of other life in our very, very well-meaning sustainability or governmental interventions. And a lot of the green climate movement, in my personal opinion, and I am constantly updating my version of this so that I'm not, you know, very dogmatic, but where I stand today, all these forms of life are inputs into our system for our benefit. And that makes sense because human communities have, as you pointed out, you've done this work around ancestral uses. We have used in a very uh, reciprocal way other forms of life since the beginning of time. Everything is eaten and gets eaten and, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's harsh out there, right? But at the same time, this, this, this idea that all species are there for our utility is such a broken one. And so I think two things on that. When you speak about offsets and compensation, uh, a lot of offsets rely on the idea of fungibility, that we can raise an ecosystem here and protect one here, and it's the same thing, but obviously every version of life is unique. And so what I hear you say is that the fungi allow us to protect the uniqueness of a place and actually not develop or not alter because you can't necessarily plant a whole microbiome and, and put it somewhere else. Is that, is that correct? I mean, straightforwardly, you can't. 
You can't. The fungi that grow on trees over 400 years old don't grow on trees that are under 400 years old, and you cannot offset or compensate time. So there is a very important demonstration, a very you know factual demonstration that um, the age of an ecosystem, the age of a forest, is um, is is determines the species that are there, and those species cannot be biologically altered to to live with younger you know younger species or younger individuals. So so I think you know. What the fungi teach you really is how um, how this host specificity and how this substrate specificity is real. You know, um, older individuals are different than younger individuals. They're very different. Older individuals sustain the possibility to establish of younger individuals, you know, without these older individuals, the older trees, for example, that have, you know, microorganismic communities that are very unique. Um, They're really the reservoirs of resilience of life. Yeah. Do you see a way that um, the scientific community could integrate more of that specificity into its biodiversity modeling or climate modeling or because so much of what that um, field of work tries to do is uh, create uniformity so that things can be understood globally and you can get to easy um, metrics. Uh, is, there a, is there a way to integrate what you're describing into that? Well, I have sort of strong personal feelings around this topic. Um, I think we move way too quickly onto ecology from natural history. I mean, natural history asks who and where, right? and Ecology asks, you know, why and how. But we're seeing, we don't know still, in case of mycology more than, more than you know, many others, we still don't know who, who and where. But nevertheless, there are numerous scientists modeling, you know, the, the why and the how of species they don't even know who and where. And so I think, you know, that we need to take a step back to natural history. We need to revisit, you know, the understanding of who and where. And with mycology especially, we need to take active steps to um, to speed up the, what we know about who is where um, because we're losing habitats by the second. And, and, and so it's important. That's why we do a lot of expeditions and we go to these places where nobody's been before to try and understand who is there. But the ecological questions, I mean, the fact that somebody would dare model based on a species A, and they don't even know what species A, the name, how it lives, where it lives, that for me is very, very hard to, to understand to say it in a nice way. Can you give an example of that? Like, how could someone even get to the why and how? Mm-hmm. Like, why is this species acting in this way? And how is it producing all these processes? If they don't know who and where it is, like, what will people say? They'll say the fungi... They'll say, for example, decomp- you know, wood decomposing fungi could be one group, right? Wood decomposing fungi. And what that wood decomposing fungus does is uh, break down either lignin or cellulose, and, you know, it's recycling that tree. Um, that said, you know the fungi that decompose lignin and the ones that decompose cellulose are completely different. But different. But for this modeling purpose, it really doesn't matter to most. And so you'll be taking a mean decomposition rate for that area. You might even 
infer how long it would take to decompose, you know, that tree trunk and you will put it in a model and you'll be able to modify it as many times as you want to see, you know, what happens. But most of that isn't really in tune with maybe the wood decomposing fungi of that place. So if you have, you know, oyster mushrooms decompose really quickly and then you have some conks that are very slow at decomposing the tree. So you really can't homogenize them into a model. Nevertheless, that is frequently done. We'll just take one step deeper into this more geeky part of our conversation, because I'm sure that some people care about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the dangers of that? Of, of, as you said, jumping to the ecology piece first and blanketing um, all these different species under maybe one umbrella term. What, What are the implications of doing that? Uh, there are many. I think one could be um, the notion that we understand what's happening in that place, an incorrect notion of that understanding. Another could be that um, that the messaging that that model gives that everything is okay could actually be the foundation to allow impact in that area, to allow to you know fragment that habitat, to harm it. Uh, but it's based on an, uh, you know, on a model with a false notion of what's happening there, and and I also think that it every time that happens, it perpetuates a system that can be tweaked to the benefit of whoever of whoever's using it, and really is not that model may not may not be a reflection of what's actually happening. I I want to be very clear that there are some. You know, there are many ecologists that are extraordinary that use models fantastically in a very rigorous and ethical way, but there are others that don't. Yeah, I think that's also really important to look out for, and the reintroduction of just knowledge and complexity into the most critical parts, first principles of the models, before jumping out and and trying to uh, justify or or create real world implications from what the science says. And also, it takes us it. it it takes you to look at, you know, where that science is funded from as well. You know, there is in, you know, as in many systems, many human systems, there is, there, there's some science that, that is funded, um, with a purpose. Um, and there, and and there is other that is more, you know, altruistic. So, so yeah, I, I always, like to look at where the funding comes from. Yeah, follow the money, as they say. And and speaking of that, uh, what do you think about the the for profit sort of venture initiatives that are coming out of working? They would not say they're working for the fungi. I believe. I think that is very unique to you and your work, and coming from a very wholesome place. But they're working with the fungi, and they're creating new building materials and new types of foods and alt meats. How do you view that whole industry? I think it's I think it's wonderful. I think you know nature-based solutions to to current ailments of people and planet are the way forward. Um, I don't demonize money personally. No, it's only money. I mean, I was brought up in a household. My mom would say, "It's only money." You know, if you need to spend it, you spend it. If you need to save it, you save it. It's only money. I mean, I don't think that money is a demon. Um, and so, so I think it's wonderful. I also understand. Um, and I have learned that in order to be philanthropic, you need to be profitable, right? So to, to, to be, to be, you know, philanthropic, you need to be profitable. And, and, and ultimately, I think that the effort, um, to meet, you know, a need, you know, a, com- a, a market need uh, is way best invested in a nature-based solution than in, you know, a, a, um, in a solution that might uh, have, you know, 
more detrimental, obvious detrimental effects on, on the environment. I think it's wonderful that this is happening. I can't wait to see more of them. Would there be um, applications inside of that kind of for-profit world? Or if you think about biological inputs, and I'll actually share something on that, but um, implications from the science that you'll be doing with the foundation and the mapping for those fields. Because for example, in um, agricultural inputs now, we're trying to use different mycorrhizal fungi applications um, instead of the chemical slash petrol-based fertilizer systems and pesticides and so on. I've heard that an issue with those is that they're still using quite um, simple strains, sometimes single strains, and blanketing them across an ecosystem, uh, which is, again, a monocultural approach. It's definitely better, um, but it might still be a monocultural approach. So do you see that there will be uses for the science that's being developed inside of these new businesses and nature-based uh, economies? I think, uh, you know, the use of fungi, for example, as, um, you know, for mycorrhizal enhancement, these, these are very old things, you know, the forestry industry has been using them for decades. Um, I, you know, there's more, there's more consciousness now about what's going on and and there's more of an understanding of some of the detrimental effects and and I am sure that um I'm sure that they will be you know more and more um results tending to make to make these these products more efficient I think that you know that your question leads us to the question of patents and I think that the technology being developed inside these for-profit companies have the potential to really change the world if and only if, you know, they're not completely patented and prohibited of being shared. I think open source is fundamental. Uh, I think I, I really do believe that that open source technology with nature-based solutions is the way forward. I mean, yeah, two points on that. The fungi are open source. I mean, they are the decentralized neural network of the whole planet and they do not store or keep anything for themselves. So it's kind of ironic to open source, to not open source something that by its inherent design and ontology is open sourced. And yet I think the resistance that you would get to that statement, which is one that I get when I um, challenge certain startups on their IP and their open source protocols, and obviously the pharmaceutical industry is also uh, very rife in this, it's the idea that, well, you know, R&D and funding and all the money we put in, if we don't open, if we don't have some patents or IP, then we're not backstopping our costs. And so it seems like a very tricky uh, dilemma that could be an excuse and yet also has some very serious practicalities that that need to be resolved. Yeah. And and it takes, it takes us, you know, um, very, very certainly into, you know, the thresholds of acceptable profit, you know, so you know, people, people normally think, you know, when they know I work for a nonprofit, you know, they're like, oh, so you work for free. No, I have a salary, but the profit of our work is durable change, right? Um, For-profit companies measure their success, not in durable change, but in the amount of money that is left over and can be taken out either to reinvest or for your or for the personal use of whoever you know owns that company and i think that you know the the whole patent issue and how open source works or not is very tightly um bound to the issue of 
profitability. And here in Chile, for example, our pension system is private and it's mandatorily private. Now, the, the, the pension funds here in Chile generate profit for individuals, the richest individuals in the country, right? And, we, and, and so there is a question there of how, how much of that profit is acceptable from, for example, you know, pension funds for people that you're constantly earning off of and just giving as less as you can return to the person's, you know, pension fund. And that's the same for for-profit companies, you know. Um, I, I would, I would love, I, I really love hearing, sometimes I hear about companies that, you know, go as low as they can with the profit and, and really try to, to build it up in a different way. But the, I think there's a big issue there. I yeah. think this is a really um, interesting provocation for any company that's using, uh, let's say, the fungi or other forms of the living world, which I think that those forms of life are the quote-unquote inputs for a lot of systems, um, to think about a percentage of their uh, profits, a significant percentage possibly, being uh, cycled back into that system and supporting NGOs um, and supporting research groups that they benefited from in the first place. And this is a massive unclosed loop of the financial system where they will benefit from this kind of research that's being done and not necessarily funnel profits back in, especially when it's coming from nature. Especially. Yeah. And so that's something that I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty vo vocal advocate for. And that does bring me back to something you mentioned earlier that I want to touch on. Um, you spoke about the, the elders program and that you're mapping these ancestral traditional uses. The jump there is simply that we also have taken lots of form of uh, indigenous knowledge or place and extracted that and not given, I think, credit and uh, resources back where it's due. Yeah. Um, but moving a little bit on from the financial piece, are there um, some of those uses that you could share with us right now that might have been unexpected even to you when you heard about them or how our ancestors have used fungi in, in their day-to-day -day lives? So there are, one of the things that have most surprised me are you know, these, these how ind independently uses of fungal allies, and hum, you know, human allies to fungi have, have culturally co-evolved in different places. So for example, you can look at puffballs. Puffballs are incredible, right? giant or not or not always giant but you know these little balls that you know when they're white and firm um some are edible then they you know they mature and they open up and they have this you know powder inside the spores that are medicinal and then the base the sterile base that remains after sporulation is actually a fire starter you know so you have one species that's edible medicinal and the tinder fungus and the Fuegan people here in Tierra del Fuego would use them a lot. But one of the things that's most surprising is that from Tierra del Fuego, uh, you know, central Chile, uh, all Central America, North America, Australia, Asia, Europe, there's this, everybody has understood that those spores are good for, for scarring wounds, for healing wounds. And it's reiterated. You see it all over the world. Um, and, and today, even you, you, you can go to most places and you'll find shepherds, for example, or herders, and they'll be carrying a little bag with the spores of a puffball in case their animals are wounded or they're wounded. And it's still a current use. And it's very widespread. That's one, for example, that has been incredible to, to understand how cosmopolitan the use is and how 
disconnected the communication from one piece of the world to the other is for them to have even shared that. No, they found that out by themselves. Yeah. Is there another use you could share? I love these examples. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a lot of um, uses of fungi for like uh, symbols of power. Um, and they're pretty widespread. So, you know, from Papua New Guinea, you can see um, heads of tribes would use, you know, polypores, some conchs on, as necklaces, as a symbol of power. And then you see in other parts, you know, um, maybe in the Amazon, um, the use of polypores and conchs also as symbols of power to adorn, you know, the, the um headdresses or, or, or on a necklace. And, and you can see these, you know, and you see them also in Europe, you'll see use of these conchs as something very special and a symbol of power. Um, those, those are, are interesting uses. And then, you know, from helping a baby to drop its belly button to, um, you know, healing toothache, you, you find many, many uses all over the world. But th those are some of the, you know, really distinct ones that you see across geographies. I wonder if the ones that are linked to power have to do with uh, the connection to the spirit realm and that a lot of shamans probably used fungi for, um, psych for their psychoactive purposes and ingredients. And so access to that other place might have been associated with, um, with certain... Uh, godly powers or the powers to foretell or foresee things. So I'm sure that there may have been some connections there. <laughs> and and before, before we close, um, for people who want to become closer to the fungi and who want to learn about their world, you gave a wonderful invitation before, which was to walk slowly, observe, try and sense their vibration. Maybe you've got to come across one first and spend time with it and then you know what you're looking for. How would you advise people uh, to start in their kind of mycological uh, explorations? I think the most important thing is to understand the seasonality of the, of the visible part of fungi. So, you know, depending on where you are in the world, but most commonly in autumn and in spring, you will be able to see them. It's not that they're not there in the other seasons. They're there. They're just underground. So, you know, to avoid frustration of being looking without any success, you know, try to understand what season they're visible in, in your geography. And then um, I would say also don't limit yourself to having to go to a, you know, a, a forest. You can go to your local park. You can look in your plant pots. You can look in your garden. You can walk through your neighborhood and look in the trees. And in the right season, you'll probably see many of them. And what you see matters. The fact that you're having an encounter with that macroscopic you know, um, moment of the fungus is not, is not um, trivial. You are in a magical coincidence with the two or three or four or five days that they're visible a year. So acknowledge how important what you see is. Um, and, and, and I would say, you know, look everywhere and, 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 and spend, spend a moment to understand that you're really in an encounter with, with, with an organism that's not visible very often. Yeah. And also maybe that you're an encountering an organism that is millions of years old and so ancient, right? Oh yeah, and and possibly not even described. I mean, we've 
there was a new species found in like smack in the center of the city here in Santiago a few years ago. I mean, it's not a given. You know, it, what you see really does matter. And and on the Fungi Foundation website, there is a a link to a, to a campaign called "What You See Matters," and there is all the steps and 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 all the instructions if you want to you know take good photographs or if you want to voucher that specimen to understand who it is there's a whole tutorial in both english and spanish and you can you know try to learn what we and understand what we do when we encounter them and you can try it out yourself yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm absolutely going to link people to that. What you see matters. Yeah. Juliana, I'll just end on one thing that I saw on your website, which is a, I feel like it should be a hashtag or some kind of social meme. It's, you know, the future is fungi. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to adopt that and use it everywhere. Yeah. So I'm going to end this show just by saying thank you so much. The future is fungi. You are bringing that future to the fungi. So it's been an absolute joy to, to meet you and speak with you today. Thank you very much, Alexa. It's been a joy. Muchas gracias a ti. Thank you so much. That was Juliana Fucci, mycologist and founder of the Fungi Foundation. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks time where we'll be talking finance for nature. I would love to hear from you and please reach out to me on the website lifeworld.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon. Bye.